Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. But today, I'm not alone. Today, you'll be in good hands because I have a real historian on the show. Not just that, but he's actually a professional history podcaster, too. So how did I finagle this, you ask? I just subscribed to his VIP membership feed, and I guess the membership includes guest appearances. So how, how cool is that? Now, the podcaster I'm talking about is none other than the host of the History of podcasts, like the History of Hannibal, History of Alexander, History of the Arab Spring, and recently started another that I highly recommend, the History of the United States podcast, Jamie Redfern. And welcome to the History of Germany, Jamie, and thanks for coming to the show. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me. I'm I, I'm loving your current, so the, the uh, VIP membership feed uh, for the History of the United States podcast is you're you're covering the Aztecs and like the early history to to the you know it's well it's ongoing so I don't know how far you're going to go but um, <laughs> that's really cool too and I would also recommend that it's definitely um, a great show both of them you know your your normal feed and your membership feed you oh, should thank be, you I appreciate that <laughs> sure and you should be aware of one thing so on this show this show gets translated into German so everything you say will be translated into German. Oh, just, wow. Just so you're aware. That is fantastic. <laughs> I didn't know that was part of the deal and coming on. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah, another another thing that I think is really cool is because I do do this in German, I always wondered what do the my what does my German audience think of an American doing the, the their own history in their own language? I mean, you know, is that, I mean, I just, I just can't imagine really. But so I, I actually, I appreciate the fact that we have a Brit doing the history of the United States, because it's kind of, you know, it makes me feel like, okay, maybe there's some patriotic biases we might have that if you just have somebody that's not an American doing it, that just avoids a lot of those issues. So um, if anything, I think that's a plus. I would I would recommend it your show even more because of that. The only downside is um, not is missing out on like culturally things that like all Americans know, like um, Roanoke. Yeah. Yeah, which is a huge deal. Except I'd never heard of it before I started doing the research, and I'd only seen it written down. So I did my yeah. first episode about Roanoke, uh-huh. and because I didn't know that he was silent, and I've got so much flack from so many people about that. Like, how could you not know this? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, I have the advantage that German is pretty phonetic, so I, I don't. I actually have less pronunciation issues in German than I do in English. But oh, that's I, always Andy. I am always paranoid of the same thing. Like, I, I'm just like, oh, I'm missing out on so many jokes here because I don't really watch that much German TV or I don't, I can't just like, uh, I'm in California now. So I, I can't just like go down to that local museum and, you know, or that battlefield and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's that painful aspect of it. If, if yeah, if you were here, you just, you know, go down to uh, Virginia and start, you know, jumping your pickup truck or car and <laughs> start driving around. But yeah, yeah. okay. 
Now, up until now, or the last few episodes, I've been talking about um, the German-Roman relationship, which I thought I would get through very quickly, and it turns out this is, I don't know, episode eight on that already. So we covered um, some of the kind of Romanization of, of the Germans and the conversion of, you know, conversion to Christianity of both Romans and Germans, because in some cases that happened pretty close to each other. So I want to kind of continue with that and then kind of look like, or, you know, get a view of what this relationship between Germanic peoples and Romans and the, the Roman empire and all that looked like kind of right at the cusp, right before the Great Migration, and when it all started to fray and crumble. And you're the perfect person to have on the show because of that, because you just wrote your thesis on on a part of that, at least. So now I really want to talk about, okay, so, you know, all these Germans are migrating, I guess. And now how did Rome react to this? Because they they changed their strategy, just how they defended themselves, their infrastructure, their military, all this changed pretty quickly. At least, you know, every every couple generations, you could say that there were major differences in the way it was run before. Mm -hmm. You've got a constant trying to improve. Yeah. And so I've I've had to read through your your thesis. And and that was just incredibly fascinating. Um, I guess my my first question for you, or what I would start with, is is like way before. So, um, what was like if you could paint a picture of what was kind of Romans' idea of defense before they had any issues with with Germanic peoples, and what did that look like um, when Rome was stable? Let's say. Okay, um, for the. Very beginning, like when Rome begins to deal with the Germans, they have the perspective that the best form of defense is offense. Mm -hmm. And you get that with uh, dealing with the Tuzeburger Forest and their constant attempts right. to annex Germany. Yep. Um, but when that doesn't work out and they stop expanding, they um, have a bit of a hegemonic imperial system where you have the core imperial provinces in the center. You have Italy, you have Gaul, Greece... Um, and then that's surrounded by that is a string of client kingdoms. So the idea is the client kingdoms can deal with the threats from further afield. They can control local policing. And if there's a big problem, then a central army stationed at a, um, a key like nexus in the empire can strive mm -hmm. out and deal with it. Yeah. So and what, so what they, time period are we talking there? This is the Julio-Claudian period. Yeah. Okay. And then, obviously, at some point, that stops kind of working out so well for them. Okay. It's very untidy, um, because you've got all these different client kingdoms, and the Romans, they like to have things organized. It's too crazy for them. So mm -hmm. they start annexing, they start making the frontier a lot straighter. Uh, there's ideas of a scientific frontier, like what's the best frontier we can manage so during the Antoninian period, you get a perimeter defense. This is Hadrian's Wall, right. um, where you've got a the limes, which are defensive networks. And the idea is that Rome uses those as forward bases to try and crush a rebellion before it exists. That way, the civilians within the empire are better protected. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I think it's this, um, that this perimeter defense, these strong borders are the... Is is a lot of my focus in the last couple episodes when I when if you if you think of 
there being a, a strong Roman border, but there's also a lot of trade. I mean, I think um, the more I read about even like, even like Hadrian's Wall, if, you know, the, the more, more recent research is, is saying that it was really porous and there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of, um, you know, unless and, until there was an attack, then they closed up shop. But there were um, people living on both sides of the wall and it was still a gradient of culture and trade goods that you could find, you know, for miles and miles away. I mean, it definitely wasn't something to hide behind. It was mm-hmm. something to, like, project Roman force yes. outwards, project culture. Yep, and so this is, yeah, and so I, I was trying to paint the same sort of picture that now we're looking at the Romans thought of themselves as, okay, you know, the the, the west bank of the Rhine is ours, period, and the south of the Danube is ours. And, and in between the two, they still had client kingdoms, but, um, you know, those two borders are easy to defend and nothing gets through. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but on the other side of the border, there you know, Romanization happened for a good um, to simplify, I guess I'd say a strip of land that's a good, you know, two to three hundred miles wide. And we see Germanic tribes emulating, uh, you know, Roman towns starting to well, first of all, they didn't really have that many towns before. So they start build, building towns and, you know, emulating them on a grid and trying to build um, as close to Roman towns as possible. And it's just really interesting. So then you see this spread of Roman influence in a way. Um, But so it also wasn't a definitive border. It wasn't like outside the wall are barbarians and we never talk to them and we fear them. No, no, no. It was like that there's good money to be had out there. Let's go trade and and uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But so that so what, what were the problems with that? Why did that system start to kind of crumble? Um, the problem is with that system is like it's a better system than what existed before, mm-hmm. but it's very fragile because mm-hmm. by moving all the forces of the Roman Empire from the interior to the exterior along the perimeter, you lose a reserve. You can't deal with mm-hmm. a threat. Like um, if a force can punch through that perimeter, then you've got a huge problem. You don't have anyone to deal with it. Yeah. And that, that's already um, foreshadowing a lot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That um, sort of is where everything really falls apart with that. Yeah. And uh, now, now I know we're, we're jumping ahead a lot, but just to kind of keep this together, to kind of follow the, um, well, I, I like the, the way you had it laid out in your thesis, actually. Um, so now, you know, even, even after the Great Migration period, even after the crumble, so how did, how did they deal with that? How did they, you know, how did Rome uh, adapt or change to that? Uh, they thought that the best way to deal with this is to sort of reintroduce depth. Like, um, mm-hmm. client kingdoms start becoming more of a big deal in the 4th century. There is Edward Lutvak's famous defense in depth theory, mm-hmm. um, where I think the Roman military isn't what you'd think of as the Roman military anymore. Like, there's no uh, classic legionaries with the big square shields full of armor. Um, what you have is a string of like part-time peasant soldiers on the frontier, the um, Limitanii. And mm-hmm. then there are interior field armies, the uh, Comistatanstes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, Latin can be a pain to pronounce. Yeah. Um, and then they... So the frontier troops will try and bog down any invading army and then the, yeah, um, right. the Central Reserve will come in and save the day. Mm-hmm. Except that while it allows the empire to continue, that tends to lead to a lot of invasions, which, yeah, mm-hmm. leads to 
yeah. all the Germanic invasions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in your thesis, um, you know, it just kind of in my mind, I always wonder, like, why why did Rome fail? How did this happen? And of course, there's there's a myriad of reasons, and it all kind of comes together, but. Uh, you know, the obvious flip side to that is, well, but Byzantine, you know, the Byzantines were okay for another thousand years. Um, so what was different? What did the Byzantines do different? Uh, that is a very tough question. The Byzantines had a few advantages that the Romans in the West didn't really have. Okay. I think that the attacks were less focused on them. Um, like they were better able to absorb the shock, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So part of, of it was just a yeah roll of the dice kind of thing where they were how they yeah. Um, and I guess you'd have to say a lot of it is the location of Constantinople, yeah. where that city is just so easy to defend that mm-hmm. had Rome or Ravenna or Milan being anywhere near as brilliantly strategically located as Constantinople, maybe something could have held out, but. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, another um, couple of of things that I I gleaned from your thesis is that I didn't really know. So because I still kind of thought of, I mean, I guess I I, I knew this, that in the decline, it's a very different Rome, but I still would think of no matter what, Rome had these mighty armies. Uh, Maybe they just failed tactically now and then or, or whatever. But the, the fact is that, that kind of by the end of the Roman empire, just recruitment itself was a huge struggle and especially in, in many provinces. So that's kind of, and, and um, recruitment can be different in one province versus another, which was, you know, something I hadn't really thought of. Mm-hmm. So that, that's something that I thought was interesting that, that I think um, maybe did I, that I get this from your thesis or somewhere else, but even to have a 2% of the population, in the military was, was hard for them to do basically. Yeah, um, that was in mind that the yeah. max that there are a, there's a population of about fifty million people um, in mm-hmm. the Roman Empire, and that the largest possible army they could support was five hundred thousand. So they couldn't get above two percent, but a lot mm-hmm. of the time it was even smaller than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, in fact, they weren't really defending, or they weren't really depending on themselves so much which so first of all you know there's there's we have uh, mercenaries we have them just paying paying barbarians to fight their wars for them but then another thing that i kind of wanted to break down a little bit on this episode was um, in your thesis you mentioned federati and and so i know about I, i kind of knew how client kingdoms worked and i've been reading about it for the you know for the last few episodes but give us some more details there. So, because even the the Latin term term federati, so it's a it's a really old one. They've been using it forever. But we're kind of talking about what did you say, fruitus in iniquum? I'm, my Latin's horrible too. But kind of an unequal um, federation or you know client kingdom. So yeah. the Romans were definitely the dominant partner in this arrangement, and. If I remember correctly, the client kingdoms had to go to war if Rome made them, but not necessarily the other way around. Is that what made uh, it unequal? E- yes. Yeah. Um, okay. There are. There's another type of equal alliance where Rome would have to go to war for the other person, but those don't really exist from about 500 yeah. BC onwards. So, what what would have been an earlier example of one? Um, probably something along the lines of. Um, when Rome was a city-state, the 
the um, yeah. relationship yeah. it had with the Latin League, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so yeah, they would def- defend each other equally. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. And now this is <laughs> you're gonna love this one. <laughs> um, so because this is this is a crazy question. This would be you know this would be you could write a a a series of books on this. But what part of of the collapse of Rome is internal, just kind of rotting away from the insides from for various reasons. And I know there's a, you know, a million reasons. Um, but then also what part is is kind of the invading Germans being pushed by Huns? And so what parts internal? What what parts external? If you had to give a percentage point <laughs> to that, uh, what would you say? If I was to put it as a percentage, I would say uh, maybe a third external and two thirds internal. Okay. I think. Okay. I think so it's definitely an internal thing. That's interesting. So it, yeah. So if they would have had their act together, even just a little bit more, they could have they could have you know hung on and and uh, probably outlasted the Huns and and been okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to make a bold statement that that that's the end of the I, the end of study on Rome. I, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that because you there are just so many problems at this point and um uh you know there was that that theory i don't even know if that's still valid i kind of think not but uh, someone wrote a book saying well you know the rome the roman empire collapsed because they used lead pipes and they all just went a bit daft after a while or you know had lead poisoning um yeah that's still in there that's still one of a hundred yeah i'm sure it's not (laughs) emphasized so much anymore it's one of a hundred reasons maybe but but yeah i mean there was uh, just, just the the way that their society functioned and and their government government and everything was just, was kind of more and more splintered, less and you know less and less centralized infrastructure. Um, although actually, infrastructure it's interesting that Rome had good infrastructure and still. I mean, that's the thing. There's just so many things that had to go wrong for them to collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so okay, I, I think yeah, that's interesting. I, I, again, I, I'm sure we could talk about that for. Hours another 10 hours. yeah or even a hundred episodes in fact i would say hey go listen to the history of rome podcast and um you know there's a bunch of others out there so uh, we don't need to talk about that again i would like to talk about this the invasions from the kind of germanic point of view or what that looked like so so i guess my first question is is it it was really common for some of these germanic tribes to be formalized um Roman Federati? Is that true? Or were they really, you know, th- completely independent, completely on their own? Um, it, uh, it varies. You get some... There, there's a spectrum, which I guess. Are, yeah. Generally, what happens is that the with the big 406 invasion, those tribes aren't Federati, but they become Federati later yeah, on. Af- yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, after the, uh, the invasions have all played out, like, at the... About 418, things begin to settle down a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, yeah, and then they're kind of sub-kingdoms of... I mean, then we get even weirder. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give examples in later episodes of Germanic... Or of, of Germans, really, um, you know, claiming to have Roman authority and just trying to continue on the, the Roman Empire, even though it's, <laughs> you know, oh, German, yeah. German government and, and, you know, German military, German tactics, but, um, you know, they'll take the, the local title or whatever... Um, so it's, yeah, it's clearly a huge range from completely independent to Germans that think they are, you know, the Roman authority, basically. Yeah. So one of the um, a little quirk I like is to do with um, in the mid uh, the four fifties when you've got one of the Gothic kings. He's um, 
like he's dealing with course and it's being described by a Gallo-Roman aristocrat called Sidonius Apollinaris. And when he's describing uh, the Gothic king doing whatever, he's describing a Roman magistrate and the account is like a copy of Suetonius describing one of the Roman empires or Cassius Dio dealing with um, uh, Septimius Severus. Like the words he's using are exactly the same words you'd use for a Roman arist- like a Roman uh-huh. magistrate. Yep. Yeah, and it's, it's all within that world, mm-hmm. even though he's a barbarian king and he has nothing to do with Rome. Yeah, I've obviously um, mentioned the Goths before, and we talked about their their conversion to Christianity and and that in a, a former episode. Um, but I never really introduced them, so this is <laughs> this could actually be a lot of fun. Would you Would you like to help me introduce the Goths to the History of Germany podcast? Like, I would love to. I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually been looking forward to this for a very long time, so it's it's cool you're here. So, who are the Goths, Jamie? Where did they come from? Where did the Goths come from? That is a bit of a mystery. It, yeah, um, it seems to be some place in your in northern europe around the baltic maybe sweden maybe they come from the ukraine but somewhere in northeastern europe yeah there's Uh, yeah we could go back to legend Um, oh yeah yeah but (laughs) oh there's plenty of legend around the early goths if you get into like jordanes's getica he describes the goths having adventures like in a thousand bc with the egyptians and they're fighting at troy and yeah, I, I, I came across... Yeah, I saw those. Um, yeah, well, actually, a lot of Germanic tribes had ones like that. I found, I found the same thing for the Saxons and the... Um, oh, geez, what was it? So the Saxons also... So the Saxons claimed that they were fleeing uh, Trojan... Ref, you know, they were descended from fleeing Trojan refugees. And the oh, Franks um. was something else. Like, they were, you know... they descendants of alexander the great's army or something but you know they do tie it back to to classical legends and stories if they can or or, i mean they you know even if they can't they will they'll try um there's another will there's a way yeah and there's a the the, there's another kind of um i guess the most famous origin myth is the gut saga which um relates kind of when they and that's the question is, is did they, you know, why did they come from Gotland or it's, it's really not clear where they originated from, right? Like, like what part of Sweden? Because in, in Swedish history, they, they're from either there's a, um, an island, Gotland, if, if people are kind of geographically uh, challenged. Um, and it, you know, just kind of got too small to support them. And then they perhaps spread out from there. And so the, the Gutsaga describes this. Um, I'll give you one little quote here. It says, Over a long time, the people descended from these three multiplied so much that the land couldn't support them all. Then they draw lots, and every third person was picked to leave, and they could keep everything they owned and take it with them, except for their land, obviously. Uh, They went up the river Dvina, up through Russia. They went so far that they came to the land of the Greeks, okay, which is mm, all right. Uh, They settled there and live there still and still have something of our language. If if they mean that they went to like the Crimea and stuff, yeah, that's true. Um, Mm -hmm. But so, and I guess it's, it's also kind of interesting to note that there are similar Germanic tribes that even the Vandals perhaps followed a very similar path. Um, kind of from from southern Scandinavia into Pomerania, which is now 
northern Poland, basically, and then south into the Ukraine. And that's where they were kind of at the beginning of the Great Migration. And then they all moved again. Mm-hmm. Um, cause then, so then, oh, okay. Yeah. Here's a question for you. Okay. So when, like, when do we start seeing goths really showing up in Roman sources? They begin to appear in the middle of the third century. Um, this is when they start moving southwards from yeah. the Ukraine. Uh, they begin causing problems on the edge of uh, Dacia mm-hmm. and then like raiding in Greece and around the Black Sea. Yeah, and yeah, and, and so the uh, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that again the Romans. That makes me think of the Huns. Like the Romans don't really talk about them until they're right there, until they're just yeah. up against their borders and like, oh crap, there's this whole people we didn't know about, um, and they're right on our borders. You know, who are these guys? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's too bad. I feel like uh, I wish Romans would have gone out and explored a bit more because Ukraine's not that far from from where they were. Um, no. but, but yeah, they, so in the Ukraine, this is, so this will be a future episode. I'm, I'm definitely going to talk about, um, kind of the linguistics about with, with Goths, cause for the most part they died out. It's, it's an extinct uh, branch of, of the Germanic language, but there's Crimean Goths that stayed put up until the, what, like 18th century or something. Have you, have mm-hmm. you heard of these guys? Like uh, no, I don't think I have actually. So they, they, they were really... Um, I, I think the religion might have been just regular uh, Russian Orthodox by this point. Uh-huh. But they were noted for, they kind of lived in their villages. They were kind of segregated. And I I can't remember exactly when they were gone, but they were for sure there in the 18th century, probably the 19th century. And then, you know, through one Russian policy of another, they were just finally, you know, or maybe when the railroad came through or when the harbor was enlarged and they just were just absorbed into the rest of the population. But Crimean huh. Goths, um, so they were, you know, they were there from before the Huns. They kind of stayed out of the way by being in the Crimea and uh, were there until, you know, just kind of stayed put. So I'm, oh, wow. I, I, but the sources on, so even that's, that's the unfortunate part is that they, they disappeared right before people were really interested in linguistics and started to really, really write this stuff down, like in the, especially in the 19th century. And so right when, you know, so they disappeared just, just a generation or two before people really were interested, like, wait a minute, you know, there's these stories of these Goths uh, in the Ukraine or in Russia. And um, yeah, but they're gone now. And, you know, so it's kind of a sad story, actually, because we could know a lot more about the Gothic language. I mean, I'm sure it evolved over 1500 years or so, but but still, yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about that later too. Um, so yeah, some goths did kind of end up staying put. Um, and so yeah, now we actually this is another interesting part of Roman history because we're talking about the time of Constantine the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, because the goths were um, very friendly with uh, the Constantinians. They sort of moved into Dacia when the Romans mm-hmm. withdrew, and Constantine, um, he sort of launched a campaign against them, but then allowed, he made peace, he let them trade. And then to keep an eye on them, he built a bridge across the Danube. Yes. And it's insane, this bridge. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, I, 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 I made a, I did a whole episode just on Julius Caesar's bridge when he crossed the Rhine. And then when I looked this up, I was like, oh my goodness, this is, yeah, even, even more impressive. Um, 
But yeah, that's important. So he built this, I mean, especially, you know, the Danube was the border. So by building this huge bridge across it, that's actually hugely symbolic even, I would say. Mm. Yeah, but it's um, not maintaining access north of the Danube so that they yeah. can... It's no longer part of Rome, but we can still go there whenever we want, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yep. Okay, and then I, I didn't really know what to say about the Huns, if I was going to talk about them later or just, you know, n- not say that much about about them. Now, the, the thing I would say about the Huns is, first of all, it's really important to note that they're not a Germanic people. Um, this has come up on the show before. Uh, so in the in World War One, Huns was or the Hun or whatever that was used as a racial slur or just a, a you know kind of mean slur to the enemy that uh, that that um, Americans and Brits and the Allies called the Germans, um, and it was and then many more. There was a lot of propaganda around that that was that was pretty bad. Um, so just to clarify, Germans weren't Huns um, at all. <laughs> Huns were a non-Germanic people from the steppe, from Central Asia or from Western Asia, rather. And kind of, I would say, my best guess is that they're sort of originated from north of the Caspian Sea? Um, Question mark? I don't really... Would you agree with that statement? Um, Possibly? Somewhere around that, somewhere from the steppe. Yeah, um, it's, it's again like no one really knows exactly. No one, um, I don't know. I couldn't really find. You know, do people is what, what do we know of their language? Can we order them in linguistically even? I th- they fit into. Like, it's not the Indo-European language tree. I think so it's, it's the yeah. Uralic family tree. Yeah, uh, okay, I think so, like Finnish is probably the closest. So if it was that, yeah, okay, remnants. yeah. Because another thing is, I, I know that they're not Slavic. Um, because that's, yeah, we we're, I do the Bohemian podcast and we talk about Czechs all the time. Huns were not Slavic. They were not Germanic. So, you know, they were just they were just from that far east. Um, mm. So this completely foreign invasion and they just rolled in. They just came in right into uh, Gothic territory. I guess what is now um, this southern Ukraine and I was guessing kind of Moldova and Romania and Bulgaria, yeah. that area. And then but but heading heading west. Yeah. So it, it, it makes more sense if you don't confuse them with with Germans or Slavs, because later that, you know, those are going to be there. Um, the, but but, yeah, everyone was kind of fleeing from them um, and, and, you know, being pushed along the way. It's really interesting to think about the origins of the Huns and, like, when you think of all these people fleeing out of their way. Like you say, we don't really know where they come from. There are some theories that they come from Mongolia um, Mm -hmm. because there's talk of the Hun attacking, um, like, Han China. Yeah. So when uh, I came across this, I I found out that the Huns that came into Europe had this cranial deformation. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if all had them or if it was a status symbol, but it kind of made them look like aliens. You know, it pushed the back of their head out a bit mm-hmm. um, and kind of neat looking, but uh, <laughs> probably very intimidating, you know, if yeah. you saw them on a battlefield. And the ones that attacked Han China didn't have that. So yeah, there, think... there was like a lot of similarities, but maybe it was a, an off branch of the same peoples or, you know, it's just, again, really murky. Yeah, but it's like a Mandarin is so uh, like monosyllabic that there aren't many Yep, sounds to yep. make so they can very easily have nothing to do with each other mm-hmm. and then yeah and then I read that there was um, the Romans mentioned someone that also was just sounded very similar and probably weren't the Huns uh, but I can't remember something mm. something with CH and then yeah so it's like but okay but by by this time in um, let's say you know middle of the 4th century and then 
Um, it's 376 when the goth when the goths are really refugees at the border. Um, so by this time, we definitely have we're talking about the Huns, and we know who we're talking about. And and it, well, even then, from from uh, archaeological or just kind of you know seeing what they what they had and what they carried with them and what they their weapons and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of the neighboring step things had the same sort of stuff. So it's hard to separate them, I guess, is my yeah. point. Like they, oh, they used uh, bronze cauldrons. Oh, so did everybody else, you know? So, um, but yeah, but in the fourth century, definitely we have them coming into Europe proper now and uh, like Eastern Europe. And th- there's one interesting story here I kind of wanted to mention. I didn't really write anything down. So I hope you... <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Okay. But when the Goths um, crossed the Danube, were basically refugees, and crossed the Danube, and then you hear these atrocities of the Romans saying, okay, you know, but it's going to cost you this much money, and you have to, you know, so you hear, you have stories of Goths selling their children for a piece of bread. They're all starving, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, I think, in Ammianus Marcellinus, um, yeah. where he writes about that a lot. The, yeah. the Romans were just awful when just taking in the gods. Horrible, yeah. So that's um, that's a story I didn't want to like l- completely leave out. So that you know, I wanted to mention that 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 was you know a really horrible sort of um, event. And then because that made me wonder, like, so what did you know? <laughs> they come in asking for to be refugees, and then um, the other thing is that then they all stay together. But previously, refugees came, but the Romans would spread them out throughout the empire or, you know, mix them up a little bit. But the Goths, you do these horrible things to them, and then you let them all stay together, and now they're inside your border. You know, it just kind of seemed like... <laughs> yeah. Asking for trouble. Is it... Yeah, is it really Rome's... F- I mean, is it? Is it the guy... You know, was it the aggressive barbarians at the gates that were... Um, you know, just barbaric and plundering, or were they just kind of out for revenge for what you did first? You know, just kind of, you know, just a different spin on thinking of these old stories that, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And yeah, it's uh, kind of interesting that, that, yeah, I think as soon as you came in with after these atrocities, then yeah, why would you ever think they're going to be loyal citizens or... You get that with um, so many of these stories that they're double-sided, like, oh, mm-hmm. the goths killed the romans but then the goths were also like brutally treated by the romans and the goths are also yeah. fleeing from the huns and like the yeah. huns of this um where we imagine them as like the terrifying people riding in off the step mm-hmm. but when you think about it um based on all we know about step culture the only time a tribe would ever leave the step is if they were forced out by a more powerful tribe so the fact that the huns were kicked out of the step means that they were the weakest of all the steppe tribes. Right. There was someone, so someone behind them chasing them out. Yeah. yeah. They're, considering how much damage they did to Europe, could you imagine what one of the actually powerful tribes would have done had they decided to leave? Right. Yep. It's mind-boggling. Yep. Um, you know, that, that, that also kind of makes me wonder is what... You know, what would have happened if the Romans just would have treated them, you know, brought them all in nicely and then gave them weapons and say, OK, now defend yourselves. And, you know, instead of committing atrocities and making them their enemy. Um, but, yeah, huh? who knows? Yeah. The, the, um, yeah. So so that's the Danube. That's that's um, kind of the the eastern part of the Roman Empire and the eastern part of the Western, you know, Roman Empire. Uh, 
so, but on the Rhine, so obviously the Huns didn't just push the Goths. The, you know, it was just this whole domino effect, um, basically. And so we also have these invasions on the Rhine in 406. I'll, I'll let you just talk about that if you want. That's that's a that's another great moment I've been waiting for. It's, I think it's one of like the dramatic set pieces yeah. of all history. Like the the Rhine freezes on uh, the on New Year's Eve four oh six, and then you have like a hundred thousand Germans crossing the Rhine. It's so poetic. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then that is yeah. So that is that date is kind of a nice marker for, I guess it's often used as one of those landmark uh, markers in the Great Migration period. If you're talking about the Great Migration, um, thousands of Germans streaming over the Roman border is definitely one of those. And it just kicks off um, just a whole change of history and and Europe slowly actually kind of becomes more recognizable to our modern day uh, eyes, which um, there's just all these things happen pretty quickly. We have, I mean, just in the fifth century, we have, you know, Odoacer taking over Italy. And don't worry, this will be a future episode. But, you know, Theodoric taking over Italy, both of them taking it over together. Then this sort of Game of Thrones, like Red Wedding, you know, where just there's this um, consolidation dinner. And then there's just Theodoric because he has all of Odoacer and all of his men killed at that dinner. And, you know, in, in North Africa, we have these... Um, king, these kingdoms like ruling themselves in the Roman manner. Um, we have Vandals that are now nowhere, anywhere near where they, they're their homeland. They're even, um, wait, they're in North, North Africa too, right? Vandals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they end up in North Africa. Um, Britannia, just, you know, listen to the British History podcast or History of England podcast that's well covered there. Um, the, the Angles and Saxons and Jutes going over there. The East, and this is what's so interesting, is that we say this, but yet, you know, the, the, the Eastern Empire lurched on, even thrived at times for another thousand years. And there's podcasts on that, too. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not going to cover that at all. But it's just really interesting to note that um, at, there's so much chaos here, and the Byzantines just kind of hobbled on and kept going. You know, so then I, I want to cover the migration period proper, some of the Goths and Huns the failed German kingdoms, starting with probably the first one was the kingdom of the Suevi. I think they were kind of settled first and called themselves a kingdom. Um, but the Burgundians were right there. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, that kind of, that makes you want to come back on this show, doesn't it? You want to talk about that too, don't you? Oh, I, don't you know it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, like slowly I'll make my way to the Franks. Um, I, yeah. The, so the interesting part is if you talk about the history of Germany, a lot of the books I have or documentaries I watch or whatever I try to get my hands on, if, if it's a this, you know, huge history of Germany kind of tomb, then it will be, it'll start with the Saxons often, or it will kind of, the, the Franks might be in the introduction, and then that's it. They skip to, you know, Otto, Otto I or the Saxons, and that's where Germany starts. So I already have those episodes written because I've been researching that. I want to make sure I get that right. But that's like, I don't know, 10, 15 episodes from now. I mean, we're not even close yet. So um, at that point, rather than be up until now, it's been a history of the Germanic peoples. At that point, it will be a proper history of Germany. So it's kind of interesting to note. I mean, yeah, I I started at 40,000 BC with Neanderthals. So it's actually kind of funny that... (laughs) 
you will apologize to your listeners if you have to skip like three months in the Virginia <laughs> colonies. And I was listening to this and I was like, man, I think I skipped 20,000 years one time, you know? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's I, I got to tell my listeners, um, Jamie is very thorough. I would highly recommend his shows. And it is it is really interesting to to get a glimpse. Right now you're covering the colonies or, you know, even the early days of the colonies. And it's mm-hmm. good to get a glimpse of um, on a seriously like a month to month basis what was happening and, you know, who was dying and, you know, the horrible winters and um, just, the, just everyone dies all yeah, the time. Well, just the utter lack of brains and planning and you know uh well you know hindsight's 2020 like i mean you just yeah. mentioned it took them it, they were there for decades this is totally off topic this is no longer <laughs> history of germany but um it took them decades to figure out that new england was colder than the british isles because even though it's further south you know you don't have the gulf stream and whatnot so mm-hmm. and i was like really decades it took them decades <laughs> to figure that out but yeah i guess so um no interesting stuff Thank you so much for coming on the show. If 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 you want, hey, stop by anytime. I'll I'll have you back on. We can talk about, um, yeah. There's there's so much more. So if anything, I'll keep going, and then I'll have you on to um, correct all my mistakes, and you can. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to come back on. It's been a pleasure this uh, doing this. That's great. And to the listeners, thank you for listening to the History of Germany podcast. And I will link to all of uh, Jamie's. Uh, URLs and links to in the show notes. So go to historyofgermanypodcast.com and I'll, you know, I'll link to your Facebook page and um, website and all that. Jamie Redferns, he's, he's also a History Podcast Network member. And so you can hang out with both of, both of us live on the History Podcast's Facebook page. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we just we just kick it there. We're in different time zones, so we kind of take shifts. He'll be there, you know, <laughs> European yes. time. I'm here West Coast time. So it works out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Usually and, find one of us. Yep, there you go. So, all right. Thank you very much for listening. And um, join us next time for the Great Migration Period on the History of Germany podcast. Mm-hmm.